Minstrel boy to the war is gone In the ranks of death you will find him His father's sword he has girded on And his wild harps long behind him Land of song, say the warrior apart This is a stand-down order issued by the International Common Law Court of Justice and the Common Law Court of Canada Criminal Trial Division. The stand-down order is issued this day, June 1st, 2017, against the fiduciary officers, agents, and clergy of the following corporations, the Roman Catholic Church, the United Church of Canada, and the Anglican Church of Canada. You are hereby ordered to stand down and refrain from engaging in the collection of any monies for your corporation or from administering funds or properties of your corporation on the following grounds. 1. You represent convicted criminal bodies that have been found guilty under international law of genocide, child trafficking, and other crimes against humanity, and therefore have no legal right to operate or gather revenue. 2. You are defrauding Canada and its taxpayers by misrepresenting your corporations as lawful and charitable Christian societies, and thereby you are falsely claiming tax-exempt status under the Income Tax Act. And three, you and your corporations have been ordered to cease and desist from your operations and to vacate your illegal occupation of Indigenous lands across Canada by duly registered court orders. If you fail to abide by this order, you can and will be arrested, charged, and tried in our common law courts as an accessory to a crime. Issued June 1st, 2017 by the Common Law Court of Canada. Hello, welcome to Radio Free Canada. I am Kevin Anna, your host, back as always, June 18th, 2017. That stand-on order, of course, we are putting out these days to remind people that we are ultimately self-governing men and women, that we do not have to cooperate with the evil in our neighborhood, and it is right in our neighborhood, as we're going to go into in, in some detail today. And we have the capacity and the need to stand down these criminal bodies. So take that You'll find it at itccs.org. Take that, distribute it, get active in your communities in reclaiming these spaces from these criminal bodies. Today, one of the things we're going to be looking at is how this child trafficking and cult murder is operating right within a major Canadian city in London, Ontario. We're going to have with us today, in just a few minutes, a community researcher and journalist uh, from Canada, Rachel Aird, who has done a lot of research into how exactly London, Ontario is the center of not just these cultic crimes, it was actually uh, the highest uh, number of serial killings in Canada, all during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, occurred right in London, Ontario. At one point, six different serial killers were operating. Again, the police didn't seem to do anything about it. Well, not just those crimes of cult killings and child trafficking, but a whole program of what's called social engineering, where means of crowd control and group mind think are tried out first on targeted populations. London, Ontario has been a center of that. And not accidentally, it's also the center of the Anglican and Catholic churches that we've convicted of crimes against humanity. The uh, Mushhole, the so-called Brantford Anglican Residential School, the oldest one in Canada, all of the archives and records with the evidence of those crimes is contained right in the London Diocese Office, London, Ontario, the Huron Diocese Office. And, of course, the churches uh, with the accomplices in government are sitting on those, those uh, documents, which Leona Moses, one of the researchers for the London 
uh, diocese actually said at one point, there's enough information there to bring down the church for crimes against humanity, etc. Well, that's, of course, in a just world. Uh, we are acting with our capacity to create that justice as we speak. If you want to be involved in this, write to us, republicofkanata at gmail.com, follow work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. Now, that book, Murder by Decree, can be found on Amazon.com. Under my name, Kevin Annett, there's uh, six books, actually, we put out in the last year and a half. And I want to talk briefly about the latest book, my 12th book. It's called Fallen. And, you know, one of the, the needs is not only to develop the self-governance and the courage individually. I remember Peter Yellowquill, a guest a few weeks ago, I asked him, well, what do we need to do most now? And he said, we need to have courage. You know, we know what the problem is. We know who the criminals are. We now need the courage to act. And that's what seems to be lacking. And one of the things that comes with the self-governance and the courage is the need to have a personal knowledge of something. Now, in my latest book, Fallen, that's really what we talk about. Um, Fallen, let me read a short description of it. It's a personal recollection and reflection concerning four men who I knew, Bingo Dawson, Harry Wilson, Ricky Lavalle, and William Coombs. These were all four men who survived the death camps called Indian Residential Schools. And it's really my personal recollection of them, how we met, how we worked and struggled together, how they all died, how they were all killed, really, by the police and churches in St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. And it's really a kind of sharing the way that I came to the issue. Genocide is a human face. This is four expressions of that face of the ongoing genocide. So really, it's it's a way into the whole abstract issue of genocide and how the crimes continue today. It's called Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. You can get it now at CreateSpace and Amazon.com. It just came out today. And uh, you can see the link, a description of the book, and a link to that. If you just go to KevinAnna.com or ITCCS.org, it's the latest posting of both sites. So you can read up on it, order it, and you'll get an insight into why we struggle and how we struggle why we carry on. Um, And in that regard as well, I wanted to flag something for listeners, especially in the West Coast. We are in the process of producing a community-based play, which I wrote, called Doppelganger. This play is in production as we speak. Now, Doppelganger, I don't know if you know, it's a German word, meaning uh, it's from a fairy tale where it was believed that a creature would come at night, steal children out of the crib, and leave a false child in their place. A, uh, A copycat child, if you like. And the idea is that within each of us, within the culture, we have like an evil twin. And the plot of the the, uh, play is really about a trial that goes on today, based in the present time, in a district court on Vancouver Island, where a United Church clergyman is on trial for heinous crimes at the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. Now, these are all based on true events, hard evidence of the medical experimentation, sterilization, and killings that happened against little Native children in the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. Now, of course, in the play, the government and the churches do everything possible to scapegoat this one character, Oliver Pierpoint, the the minister. It turns out this fellow is more than who he seems to be. And it's really looking at the whole issue of collective guilt and responsibility. If you would like to be involved in this, uh, we already have actors that are trying out for the parts, technical people and that. You can write to us, republicofkanata at gmail.com. We're going to be taking this play on the road and... um, it's one of the ways that we're bringing the issue alive. We're not just talking about the hard facts. We're looking for ways of creatively 
showing people the story of the ongoing crime of genocide and why we need a new arrangement, a common law republic, a new jurisdiction, spiritually and politically, to stand under as free men and women, so that we are not part of this genocidal regime anymore. So please watch for that, itccs.org, uh, murderbugdecree.com, kevinannett.com as well. Thanks for that. Now, I understand we have Rachel on the line. Uh, Rachel, are you there? Hi, Kevin. I'm here. Rachel, I was just uh, giving a little bit of an intro, and uh, let me just say uh, I'm really happy to be with you today. I hope we can have a good conversation about this whole issue. Um, I mentioned a little bit about how London, Ontario, is known not just for these serial killings and crimes, but this whole project of social engineering. And let me ask you to kind of introduce that topic. Explain to us a little bit about what that is and how do you think it's manifesting in London? Sure, Kevin. Um, first, I just wanted to say thank you for having me on the show today and um, thank you to everyone that's tuning in. Um, so I can just um, give a brief introduction to this idea of social engineering. Um, so basically, it's referring to efforts that are made to influence a particular, um, to influence attitudes or social behaviors on a large scale. Um, and these would be influenced by government, media, private groups, churches, etc., um, in order to produce a desired um, influence and effect or certain characteristics on a target population. Right. So that's, that's the basic idea behind social engineering. Um, can, should I give a little bit about how I kind of became aware of this? Sure. Well, let me just ask, you know, before we get into that, uh, an example mm -hmm. of what social engineering would be. Like, we know, uh, you know, people talk a lot about various mind control experiments and that that are used. Um, mm -hmm. But but what, you know, in terms of, I know some of the points you made, uh, trying to get people to feel that they're up, they're compelled to uphold hold the status quo, uh, not to challenge mm -hmm. authority, that kind of thing. Is that really what we're talking about? Yes, exactly. Um, so one example would be just a real tangible example is that um, there's, for example, research happening in Western University, and um, they would mm, they would do certain experiments or do certain studies and present certain expectations, and it creates an environment, even in a closed environment such as the university, of what is normal and what is abnormal. And then people feel that, oh, okay, a certain thing is normal. I better, you know, I better stay within this certain parameter so that I'm not uh, judged or ridiculed by, by peers. That's, right. that's one very simple kind of um, ex um, example. If I can give a citywide example. Um, sure. So London is considered um, to be the preferred test market for large corporations. So, for example, in the 60s, um, McDonald's was was established here in London, and it was this um, test to see will people buy into this and won't they, and they studied um, London because there's a certain demographic in a test city where there's a certain number of people who are widowed and a certain number of students and a certain number, number of people who are blue-collar and white-collar, and so they think of it as the sort of generic city that's represented throughout North America. And if something goes well in London, then it can go well in other places. If it fails in London, then they might be unlikely to, uh, you know, to try in other places. And I find it interesting that, you know, as part of this whole uh, test subject program, uh, of course, trauma 
is used as a means of controlling people's thoughts. And I don't think it's accidental that you have such a high rate of serial killing consistently over many years. Do you think those things are connected? Yes. I think they're extremely connected. Yes, 100%. Now, um, we talked a little bit in previous shows, I mean, this is a fairly recurring theme, that uh, the churches, of course, create, and we're talking mainstream Catholic, Anglican, United, they are very much an arm of the state. They've been used for genocidal purposes for a long time, especially in relation to Aboriginal people, but for the population as a whole, they are relied on um, in this way, and they have the cover of, of the government. Uh, and so when cult killings can occur, and they occur within religious organizations, you never hear about them. They're effectively screened from any, any disclosure or any of that. Tell me if you found evidence of that in London. I have found evidence of that in London. Um, I want to give a historical perspective, if I can go back to the 50s, sure. <laughs> because it, it, there's, one, there's one specific murder that happened in the 50s that I think points to how this social engineering uh, happens in London, and then these, these kinds of things are still happening now, you know, okay. so it's a good example. Um, so it was uh, 1956, and there was a young girl named Susan Cadeau, who was um, abducted from St. Mary's Catholic Church, which uh, was adjacent to uh, St. Mary's Catholic School. And at that time, um, it was January 6th, it was very cold, and she was playing with her two brothers and a neighborhood friend, and um, a a suspect just approached the children. He was described as white male, 30 or 40 years old, and um, he said to the children he was meeting with the priest. And um, so I guess one of the kids fell, and then when two, the two others went over to kind of help, and um, the suspect walked away with this little girl, Susan. It happened very fast, and by the time the kids, the boys realized she was gone, they were calling out to uh, to find her, and they couldn't find her anywhere. They ran home, uh, which was across the street, and, you know, a search um, ensued. So... Um, Within 24 hours, uh, her body was found, actually, the next morning, uh, 10 in the morning. Um, her body was found um, within two kilometers away um, by a train tracks. And um, so the, that case is really significant because at the time it was unsolved, but now um, a lot of research has been done into the case. And um, what they found was that, first of all, this person that was described, um, the, the boy's described him, and this is another example of where London kind of spearheaded some kind of um, a kind of uh, program. They, the court, um, you know, there's there's those artists that work in the court to do uh, court drawings. Yep. Yep. They were called in to to help the boys to describe the situation. You know, they didn't have all the technology we have now, and so this um, graphic was designed of this uh, of the predator. And um, later, what we now we've now connected that um, image to um, someone in the Air Force um, named um, Alex something or other, and um, he he was just later recognized as a serial killer, and at the time got away with it, but um, but now you know he's um, he's dead, but uh, but recognized that that he was uh, most likely behind uh, what was happened what was happening, so. That's um, a brief overview of the situation, if I could just put it in the context of social engineering, and then I'll bring it to how that's still happening now. 
So some really interesting things were happening. First, the fact that it was it happened right in a church parking lot, and that it was widely published that the um, suspect um, said to the girl, "You know, let's go and talk to the priest." Um, it led some people to think that maybe the priest was behind it. And um, he, interestingly, he had a lot to say on the pulpit after that. <laughs> and the press and the uh, newspapers and the radio often published things that he was saying. And uh, this caused a sort of public, it caused like there was a conversation happening, not just in the, in the churches and the schools, but now there was a conversation happening in the media. And that's where we're looking at sort of a social engineering kind of situation. So if there were people that were, if there was a group behind this, if it was a cult killing or some sort of organized crime, um, they were actually, it appeared to be they were communicating in the open through the media channels. Right. Um, and that's kind of the same thing that we see uh, still happening in London, Ontario. Um, so that's kind of an introduction to the kind of, the kind of okay. crime that's ha- that happened then. You mentioned it's still happening. I, I noticed you gave me a list, for example, April 11th of this year, 78 people arrested for involvement in child and human trafficking. Um, yes. This, do you want to talk about today and how this is manifesting? I, I will. So um, when I first started researching into London, Ontario, I was told two things um, by sources. One is that it's a test market, and the second is that there's a lot of murders. You know, it was my introduction to the city was really those two things. And I, I wasn't clear about the connection until I started looking into Dr. Arndt Field's uh, research. He wrote a book called Murder City, and, you know, there's really a lot to look into there. Um, but if we look at what, what's the connection to murders, serial killing, and, and then human trafficking. One has to do with London being on the 401 corridor, so that's allowing for a lot of travel between cities. And the other is this sort of social engineering environment where people are clinging to the status quo and afraid to say if they see anything suspicious. So what's happening right now is that there's... Um, there's a lot of murder that's happening that's hitting the news, and then there's a lot of murder that's happening that's not hitting the news. And there is an incredible amount of people that are going missing out of London, and there is an extremely high rate of um, child and human trafficking. So just in April 11th, um, the results of uh, police collaboration, it was called Project Equinox, which started in October, and they just investigated into the human trafficking ring, and they arrested these, you know, four, uh, 78 people. And so now those trials are pending. Um, but what it did was bring it to the public eye to say that, oh, you know, this is really an issue. This is going on. Why are we not paying paying more attention? How are we letting this happen? Um, 78 people is a lot of people to be involved, and in. you know, there's hundreds of women that are um, uh, there's hundreds of women that are being affected by this human trafficking ring, and basically. Um, people are just turning a blind eye to it. Right. So in other words, uh, it's almost like a big experiment going on. You show all the crimes in plain sight, and then you've got the population regulated mentally so that they don't respond, almost to say, okay, here's how we can commit crimes in the open and get people so controlled they won't do anything about it. Is that part of it, do you think? That, that is what appears to be going on. And that you've you've said it very clearly. Mm-hmm. When when what and uh, when I challenge people when I when I bring it up to them, um, you know they um, oh gosh, there's maybe about a hundred different 
Okay, let me let me let me narrow this down. It's as if there's a script. There's about ten different responses that people have that I continue to hear over and over, hundreds of times. I hear the same kind of ten things, and those ten things um, are about upholding the status quo. So if I mention the homelessness, or I mention poverty, or I mention children, or I mention the the, the issues with child and family services. Um, it, it, it's almost predictable now uh, how people will, re- will respond to that. Right. And it, it, now, since I mentioned family, children, services, if I can give a quick blurb. Um, I, I just want to say one I, other thing before. Okay, sorry, sorry, Rachel, hold on to that thought, but I just want to okay. say it's important to add that when we first began to bring out the crimes in residential schools like 20 years ago, we found exactly the same mm-hmm. response. People would say, well, you don't want to hurt the reputations of those church people. Like, the issue wasn't yes. children in a mass grave, it was don't hurt the church's reputation. It's this, Do you find, right. was that what you're referring to, then can a knee-jerk defend the status quo reaction? Yes. So, um, But in this case, if I mention the poverty issues, um, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, there's a non-profit for that. <laughs> there's a non-profit for that. So people as individuals are discouraged from taking any action, and, and everybody should go through, the status quo is that everybody should go through a non-profit. And the reason that's significant is because the more people that are using nonprofits, the better that is for big business and people that are getting tax breaks through do- donating to nonprofits, for example. So it, down the, there's all the kind of corruption that's happening behind the scenes with manipulation of money. But in order for that to be sustained, they need to have a high population of people who are poor and are depending on nonprofit services. Right. And you... Uh... So you found, go back to what you were first talking about. I didn't mean to cut you off with that. Sorry. No, that's okay. I, I know I can't get too much into the child, uh, child and family services in this conversation, but it's just significant to say that um, in I've researched into several different cities across Canada. Um, for example, like Kingston, Ontario, you know, it was known as the prison city because of all the, um, there's so many jails and prisons there. Everybody that you can, that you spoke with knew someone who was either in jail or associated some way with the prisons. Okay, London, in my opinion, is would be properly named as the um, Family Children Services City <laughs> because right. everyone it, it, in my so far I'll document this a little bit better and uh, it'll be out kind of within the next year or so. But so far, everyone I uh, speak with either has a direct contact with CAS or knows someone who has. It's just so prevalent. And right. I think that's part of it, that's part of the status quo. Definitely. Because as yeah, as soon as someone veers a little bit uh, into just anything, it's even normal. Like some days parents have bad days. It's not a, it's not the end of the world. But um, educators or community service, they're just uh, conditioned to respond very, very quickly. So where in other cities or other places where people will have a certain tolerance for the natural flow of parenting, uh, in London, it's very, it's, it's uh, like red alert very quickly, where a call can be made okay. uh, very quickly, and children are left taken out of their home at extremely large rates here. Yeah. Extremely yeah. shocking. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, somebody just sent an email asking for some specific examples involving CAS, because, of course, we've done other programs on the, how widespread child trafficking is within children's aid, so-called children's aid society in Ontario. But you mentioned yes. uh, the St. Peter's Catholic Seminary is right beside Marymount Children's Services. 
and it's been yes. identified as a place where there's underground tunnels where mur- murders occurred during the 60s scoop. Do you want to talk a little yes. bit about that location? Sure. Um, I it, It's, you know, just something, something that someone told me. I haven't seen it with my own eyes just yet, <laughs> but uh, I believe that there's tunnels that are um, that are underneath that seminar, seminary. And like you said, it's next door to Marymount Children's Services and then next door to Western University. And I have seen the tunnels in Western University. So actually there's um, videos of that. And so I just feel that the likelihood is very certain that next door there, the tunnels must be extended. (laughs) But I'm looking into that. So, but again, it comes into this sort of idea of status quo. So we have people that are on red alert to call CAS, um, uh, quicker than usual, it seems, and these children that are being targeted at very young ages and families that are being targeted. And the uh, status quo response is, here, here's a referral to Family Children's Services, or here's a referral to Marymount Services. So there's a large funnel of people just like flowing into Marymount, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people of these families going into Marymount, and um, they're being screened on the way in. And they're getting um, labeled, of course, and they're getting these, they, they're in partnership with uh, London Health Services and also with the university. So then they're getting medicated and prescribed right. these drugs at very young ages. And then they're staying overnight. Marymount is, a, is an overnight um, place. Oh so what, yes, exactly. <laughs> so what the problem is, is that families really lose track of their children once they're in the system. And sometimes they know where they are, or sometimes they just have no idea where they are. And it's so easy for for children to disappear from that because they're, it's plunked, Marymount is plunked right in between the university and the seminary. Well, you know, shockingly, it's shocking. (laughs) It's like a transmission belt for child traffic and child abuse. And this is how it operates right within the system now. Systematically yes. organized, you know, it isn't random. Like you know, the way the media portrays child abusers is they're, they're random sickos on the internet watching child porn. No, it's a whole big business and industry operated by the government, churches, etc. Yes. And it sounds like you've hit the tip of the iceberg of this in in London. Yes, I think so. Tell us a little bit about. I, um, I want to ask you about this, Doctor Arnfeld, who wrote the uh, the report. But tell me a little bit about like. In your own life, what led you to do this kind of research? And, and you know, your investigative journalist and that, is there your own personal experience or other things that kind of turned you on to this stuff? Um, I think, you know, it was my own personal experience. I won't get into too much of that, really. Um, but I can say that I was, um, in my work, I was doing two things. I was working as an educator, whether it was in the school or in the community, but I was also working as a, as a freelance journalist, and I was doing that on, on uh, part-time. So my, um, you know, the, the two worlds sort of collided when I, when I was um, working in Alberta because I was, started working really closely with First Nations communities, and um, when I would start to see firsthand some of the injustice and um, try to advocate for that, um, you know, then I became targeted and... Um, I had I had a, to make a choice of the life path that I took once I started to see uh, the reality of things, and I chose to leave a lot of my uh, chosen career behind so that I could do this work um, more fully. So that's sort of a brief background into how I how I came to this. Um, 
So if, to make the connection between that and, and Dr. Arnfield is um, it, when I was uh, working in Fort McMurray, I was invited to work as a note taker at, a, at an important gathering that was called Convergence YMM 2013. And um, this was my first glimpse into social engineering, and, and I can really understand the context now from West Coast to East Coast in Canada, and it connects to Dr. Arnfield's work. So basically, the industry at that time in 2013, the big industry, which is the oil companies, they had all uh, united under one umbrella. And then they decided they needed to expand the pipeline, and they were meeting with resistance, of course. And we know this is a big issue, but I'm going to make it very small <laughs> in my summary. They wanted to expand the pipeline, so they worked with uh, the provincial government and the federal government to have restrictions limited, and they had a lot of conversations, and they created a plan. And then they were ready to implement their plan, and they invited all the nonprofits of uh, Wood, uh, Wood Buffalo together to come to this big gathering. And then that's when I was invited as the note taker. So in that meeting, uh, the oil industry was basically saying, we want to expand the pipeline, which we can't do unless we have more people living here. So we need more people to live here, but they don't want to right now because of the negative reputation across Canada for uh, the oil and uh, every, all the issues around that. So we need Fort McMurray to look better <laughs> and we right. want your help, they were saying. They said, tell us what you need, because the nonprofits serve people, right? The homelessness and the poor and the transportation, they help with the, the people at the ground, grassroots. So they said, tell us what you need. We'll give you all the money you can imagine. You know, they were offering millions and billions of dollars into their budget. And they said, in exchange for that, join us together in this convergence so that we can revitalize Fort McMurray. And then we can attract people from all over Canada and all over the world to come and support this great initiative. The connection to London, yeah, I know. The connection to London was that they said they're working with uh, Western Ontario and they're doing research, and that research is feeding into what they're doing. And they also said what we're doing here in Alberta, we're feeding back to London. And then right. if all things go well, we'll just continue to expand. And they kind of put rose-colored glasses on that and said, isn't this a wonderful plan? <laughs> and we know because of all the issues that's not quite as wonderful as they tried to make it look like. So that was the beginning of my interest in Western Ontario and the test market, and I, I really wanted to know more about, well, what are they researching in London that is feeding into this uh, plan, <laughs> this agenda, the, you know? Now, just for listeners, Western Ontario means the University of Western Ontario, UWO, in London, Ontario, right? That's right. That's correct. Okay. And that, again, is situated very close to this Marymount Child Services and the Catholic Seminary. Ex yes, exactly. Yeah. Minutes Which away. Tunnel. Now, I got a, yep. uh, an email question from a listener. She just wrote, um, she, she's been to Marymount Child Services herself, and she suspects the kids were being used and experimented on with MKUltra mind-controlled techniques. Yeah. She wanted to ask Rachel if she knows or believes that Marymount is being used to program children. Yes, 100%. I have I have no doubt that that's what's happening there. It's just fine. It's taking me a long time to get the uh, to get evidence. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you finding in just in terms of the environment there? Is there like an activist community? Is there people who respond to these issues, or is this something that people tend to have to do on their own when they're looking at these <laughs> these issues? Um. The um, it's hard to answer that. 
uh, there's two ways to answer. One is that as a whole, there are some really amazing people living in London, you know, and there are very people that are very conscious of the real problems and are working together in any way that they can to create positive change. You know, on the one hand, that's there. On the other hand, um, the issues are so, so uh, systemic that, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's just very it's very challenging. It's like a Goliath. <laughs> it's, what's that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a Goliath. It's hard. Not only when when the when you're when you're talking about whole systems at work, it's hard for people to get their head around. And also when it's in their own backyard, people naturally bear away mm-hmm. from that. Let's talk about you know right. some other country, but <laughs> some other place than my neighborhood. Right. So Dr. Arnfield's work gives some hope because he is uh, working out of the university, and that was how I found him. You you asked how I how I found him, and now I made the connection. So I found him just in researching uh, this, you know, murder and child trafficking in London, and I came across his work. And um, he is uh, calling to he's his focus is really on the police force, and he's calling them to account for. How are they? How did they let all these things uh, slide? You know, he he has so much evidence now of what what police knew and chose to ignore, and so um, I actually have a little bit of hope. The more that I learn about what uh, the London police are doing and the collaboration with with him and with some of the you know uh, the work that they're doing, there there's hope actually on every level. I don't, I I know I paint a negative picture, but. From the grassroots, when it comes to like the neighborhood initiatives, um, all the way into schools and education centers, um, at every at every level, there are people who are really trying to make a difference and are um, putting this into the public eye, so we can say we don't tolerate this anymore. I, I really what? see it everywhere I go that people are trying to make a change. And what's Dr. Arnfield's short answer to why the police ignored it for so many years? So what what's his take on that? Um, that's a great question. Let me. I have a note here that might answer that pretty quickly. <clears throat> it, it, it's interesting because so it's a pattern. I mean, you find that in Vancouver, especially, that the police are definitely looking the other way because various police themselves are involved in these crimes. But I don't, what does he? What does he say about that? Well, he is saying that um, you know when you take that generic, he, he calls he calls us a he calls London a generica city. You know, taking a generic American city, <laughs> and when you take that idea of this generic kind of city and you overlay it onto criminology and what we now know about uh, the mindset of some of the criminals that are operating out of here, um, he's saying that we now we now know too much to let it to let it slide. So when you ask about what's he what's he saying to the police, he's just saying that, um, for example, if if they're up and the, if they're doing these things out in the open, we also have to be doing this out in the open. So one of his achievements was actually, um, you know, uh, creating on the London Police uh, website. He's got a lot of his work up there, and he's got all of these unsolved mysteries, uh, unsolved crimes, and the murders are now there for people to see. And that led to a lot of evidence coming to the surface that wasn't there before. So maybe you, I think maybe yet, you misunderstood my question. My question wasn't what he, oh, he saying to the police. My question was, what is his explanation, if any, as to why the police ignored it 
for so many years, serial killer. Oh, his ex. Hey, yes. Okay, he explains it because um, the police are just individuals the same way as anyone is, and they were under this same kind of mind control that the entire city is of of keeping to the status quo. So if they they were they were seeing things and then they were not reporting it. And that was because of their own individual fear that if they report it, then they'll be persecuted or they'll be targeted or they'll lose their jobs. And you know the so case, that's uh, the case of in Cornwall, that, Ontario. It, it, there's a, there, I, I believe there's a strong link here. Um, with, Don't with tell me more. I'm not, I'm not well, familiar. Cornwall, Ontario, in the 1990s, there was a policeman, Perry Dunlop, who discovered that there was massive child trafficking ring involving top Catholic businessmen local priests and that, his he took it to his sergeant. The sergeant said, well, you better drop this. And Perry didn't. He kept at it. Mm. He did his job mm-hmm. like an honest cop, and he found very quickly that the entire Cornwall, Ontario establishment were involved in this. And when mm. he wouldn't back down, he was not only fired, they put him through the ringer. He eventually did six months in jail because he wouldn't cooperate in this Ontario government cover-up called Operation Truth, which, like the... Mm so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission was designed to conceal and hide the perpetrators. At one point, Rachel, it was unbelievable. The papal nuncio, that's the Vatican ambassador to Canada, he personally intervened and was paying off the victims in Cornwall because it was involving this mild, this massive Catholic child trafficking network operating over the border, Cornwall to New York, and involving serious crime and everything. Um, Now, one of the things that Perry found quickly is that no honest cop, like any honest priest, is allowed to operate honestly. They have to go along with stuff. So I don't doubt what you're saying is true about the atmosphere of mind control, but there's an overt element as well in that they are being told, definitely, you will not look into this stuff. And, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's part of the whole pattern that, that we've identified, right? Yes, exactly. And um, another, okay, another point from the... I just got another email from the the listener. She says, um, kids come home and tell their parents about what happened. Uh, Parents need to be observant of their children's behavior. Like when a child says we were taken on a day trip or we played the tickle game, daycares are a breeding ground for the adversary to use and take kids and program them. Um, Any thoughts about that, like from your experience there? Well, um, that's just an excellent point that parents have such a can play such an important role with um, connecting with their children and and believing their children. Of course, you know when they hear these things, and I think um, the key is about these the natural social groups that we have with uh, within our families and within our neighborhoods and our communities, and that we can we can solve these kinds of things without. Um, going quickly to CAS and making reports, you know. Um, Well, that's kind of what we're talking about. When the the official report route is is a way for those inside the system doing the crime to identify who their opposition is. And that's why Mm -hmm. we say to people, you've got to organize yourself first. Do your own citizen tribunals, investigations like you're doing. Um, And let me, that I think leads now in the 15 minutes we've got left, um, to talk about solutions and and what are some of the things that you think how should the community be responding you know we've talked about neighborhood watch programs common law courts mm-hmm. that kind of thing let's talk a little bit about that your thoughts on on any of that sure i think um no i'll speak to just my own experience and and my understanding of the research and then 
see how it applies in other areas. Um, but I think um, the, the the first answer that I just strongly adhere to is talking about it no matter what, you know. And um, in London, it it also means talking about it, writing about it, I you know, being as open as possible, so that it just um, little by little by little starts to remove those veils that people have that's um, keeping them in their own little illusion about what uh, norm- normal is or perfect is. <laughs> and the more the more that we share stories, then the more people, I think it touches their hearts when they realize, you know, that these are, these are children that we're responsible for. And these are, there are, you know, these are our children and our neighbors' children and our community's children. And we have an obligation to, um, to defend them and to protect them. And when we speak, when we tell stories and speak to people's hearts, um, what I find is that the solutions emerge, but with the skills and capacities and strengths that everybody brings together to say, you know what, we, we want something different for, for our children, so let's do something different. And so that's like the really the soft answer in terms of like a very positive thing is these like little groups that children can be in or youth groups or community groups um, that just get children and teens thinking about thinking for themselves, expressing themselves. Um, supporting one another, positive friendships, you know, making good choices and that sort of thing, like junior youth groups. But then also when it comes to the sort of like confronting the, the darkness or confronting the, um, the the crimes, I think um, a solution is is about built, in my own experience, is about building some uh, some thicker skin, you know, in terms of if I see something that's not right, really having that courage to say this is not right and speaking to that person or speaking to anyone that will listen and um, and right. not being afraid to do that. Yeah. And we need examples. You know, when people see that, I remember from when we did the church occupations, you need somebody to do, show that we're not afraid, that we're not doing anything illegal, that we're standing on, right. on, on the law. And it's these elements that are themselves being illegal, even, you know, including within the police yeah. and, and social workers. Wouldn't you say that it's probably a good idea to have parents keep their kids out of the system as much as possible, like you yeah. know, organize your own daycare rather than going to a place like Marymount, that kind of thing? Yes, 100%. The more independent we can be and draw on each other's strengths and, and pull together, it's you know we're, we're rebuilding the neighborhood and rebuilding the community that's been fragmented by all the big business and everything. I, yeah, I think community, neighborhood community groups are, are a part of the key for sure. Right. And, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it just starts small. It always starts small. One, two, three people, yeah. and it, it builds from there. I can give an example. Um, it, comes, yeah. it comes out of Toronto, but there is um, something similar in London. Um, it's a junior youth group, and they meet, you know, they're, they're run by um, a group that, like these um, youth that are called animators. They usually two work together. And then they just, they get the kids together, you know, that are between the ages of 12 to 15 um, once a week. And they do all these different kinds of activities and they read, they study, they sing, they do uh, community service. And they, the point is to get the kids thinking about how they can contribute in a positive way to the neighborhood. So what happened is that in, um, in Toronto, there was a high crime community where there was just a lot of gang activity, a lot of drugs. It was just, you know, a, a neighborhood that was wrought with uh, some of that negativity. And these kids in this junior youth group, they continued to meet week after week after week after week. 
And in six years' time, what happened is that the crime rate com- decreased to almost right. zero within that place, and that the the kids, instead of joining gangs or other activities, were joining this positive um, group, and they were making a really good impact. You know, rubbing off the uh, the graffiti, for example, on walls, and picking up garbage, and doing lots of different service. Um, you know, in many ways, and so that I mean, we think it's simple if we say just come together and and uh, and be positive, <laughs> but yep. actually that is really a, a, a very powerful solution. And it's also a springboard, you know, to the, the um, other aspects too. Like when we're talking about police in our own neighborhood, being our own community police force, making citizen arrests on unknown child raping priests and people in the system who we know are harming children. We all have the capacity to do that, but sometimes that's a big step for people. And you've got to work into it through these other kind of confidence building things. So I think it's all connected, Rachel. And um, mm-hmm. first thing is information, and that's why this is so valuable. Um, we've got about, um, I'd say, eight minutes left, but let me ask you if there's things you want to touch and you haven't yet. Hmm. Um, nothing comes to mind, um, really. Um, I think the, the poli- when you're talking about like neighborhood policing, I, c- I could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Unless there's in something no, else you do. wanted to, to talk please about. Do. Um I think that what there's something really powerful about the the concept of of policing your own neighborhood and like the the problem with a neighborhood there's a good thing about neighborhood watch in that it gets people thinking about this and feeling empowered but the problem with it again is that it's a it's just a, a it's a really outdated form of um like another nonprofit in some ways, you know. Um, we when we just police for ourselves, then and and I actually feel like our cell phones are some of our uh, and the cameras on our cell phones are some of the most powerful tool that we have. You know, we don't need any other weapon except for our cell phones in most cases. Um, and when and so with a cell phone and with asking questions, um, we can really make a huge impact. So um, I'm going to give a really positive story about London. There's someone that um, he's, uh, you know what he's been doing? He's been um, somehow tracking down people in the city who are um, going online and targeting, you know, young girls. So like 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds. So this guy pretends to be a 14-year-old girl, and he sets up these people that want to meet with him, you know? And then when he, this guy, for example, um, someone's 25, and he thinks he's meeting with a 14-year-old girl, but he's really meeting with this, with this, uh, self-policer, you know, then they go and he meets them at a coffee shop, for example, the guy walk with the the police, the self-policer, I'm going to call him, he walks up with his camera, and he just meets the, the 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 guy that's sitting there and says I'm just I'm sorry to disappoint you but the girl you thought you're going to meet is not coming and you're getting me instead and then he says why would you think it's okay to meet with a 14 year old girl who do you think you are <laughs> and he records them and then he gets their answers and he just those questions he just challenges them and says who do you think you are how can you how can you do this? How can you think this is right? And he, he'll tell them, you need to modify your behavior. <laughs> you need to stop doing this. And then well, you know, that's, on YouTube. That's, public shaming is a really important tool. I mean, traditionally, that's what human beings did with each other. We just kept each other in line. We didn't rely on institutions to do it. And, yeah. um, you know, at, they, there's a group yeah. out on the West Coast called Creep Catchers. They do it. There's a bunch of them that do it. And uh, my only question about that is that again it's focusing on individuals and 
individuals are one aspect of it, but where's the big money? What are the institutions behind it? Who are the mm. big sharks who are controlling it? Um, that's yeah. what we tend to focus on, because if you, you can pick away the little fish all the time, it doesn't change the, the nature of the system you're dealing with. So, you know, I, I think we need a bigger perspective, uh, not to in any way downplay what I think people need to do that. We need to have a bigger vision of who's responsible, how we go about stopping them. So, um, I hear you. Yeah. And and the key is to that is that since the problem is systematic, system, systematic and uh, very widespread, it means the solution also has to be systematic and widespread so that we all have to connect and join forces and, and be powerful so that we're all we're we're attacking the uh, the big picture, not just one by one by one. Right. And of course, to do that, we need to organize and train people, and that's the part. You know, it's kind of like the old analogy: you can have steam, but if you don't have a piston, you don't have any movement. And the piston yes. is our organizing, training people, and getting them in groups that can take action. And uh, you know, I often say to people, even three or four people acting in a small group is often more effective than a large organization because yeah. uh, you can't be infiltrated as easily, you're in control of what you're doing, you can hit quickly and disappear into the night, so to speak, like a guerrilla movement. Right. And uh, right. That, that's some of what we talk about in our common law training manual. And um, so, uh, you know, I know that there'll be uh, events in London and other places across southern Ontario in the fall to, to train people with that, but um, I think mm-hmm. London seems, is, a, is a good spot for that to be happening. Yes. Well, you know what I said to you before. If um, you know the the problems here in London are generated here and spread elsewhere, it it could also mean that if the solutions are generated here, they can also be spread elsewhere. <laughs> so, Absolutely. I, I'd like to, mm-hmm, I'd like to think that uh, good is coming. Definitely, and um, I know I definitely want you, want to have you back. Um, are you, in terms of our our uh, other things that you'd like people to be thinking about. Um, because, you know, often on this whole issue of, of serial killing, child trafficking, it can leave people numb. Um, what yes. are, if, people, if someone listening right now, what is the one thing or two things you'd recommend them to do if they're living in the London area or a big, you know, city like that where these things are going on? Um, I think that it's natural to have um, to have a response to feel numb, you know, and to it, in a way we go, I went through it. Probably other people do. It's a, it's shocking, and so it it sends the system into shock. So I think that it in in terms of what to do, one of them is like is just know who you are and know what works for you to get to your own strength and your own empowerment. And for everyone, that will be different, you know. So right. I can't necessarily say, but just, but no, but but be gentle with yourself as you kind of like go through that that process. But and but in terms of the second solution, I would say just join forces with anyone that you can. You know, either connect with me or connect with anyone else in London that is um, seeking to make it a better city and and trying to bring these things to the surface, so that we collectively can. Uh, can dismantle what has been here historically and say we don't accept that anymore. Do you have websites or? Here. I'm sorry, to, you know, go ahead. No, that's okay. I say here, but here, here is there to me also. You know, I work in London, right. but it's not my home. <laughs> okay. I, I li- I've lived in hundreds of places in uh, in Canada, and Canada is my home. But, um, anyways, um, yeah, I do have a website. Website your email if people want to contact you to learn more about your research, anything like that. 
Sure. Um, I have a website that's in the making, so um, it's a good place to start, but it's evolving. Um, it's called expo- uh, com. So it's just a free site I'm using, and uh, something will be growing from that. But in the meantime, it, it, I do list a lot of the research there. And um, the email is... Um, hmm. Maybe they can email you, Kevin, and then you can yeah, okay. send it my I'll, way. We'll just have them, republicofcanada at gmail.com, and we'll send it on to you. Um, Perfect. And uh, in terms of your research, what are some directions you, you, you want to take on this in our last minute or two? Tell us a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working on a neighborhood news um, service, so that actually there'll be an online news service that I um, am the general editor for, and I'm also working on a YouTube service as well. And that's going to, that'll be neighborhood level, and then I'm also working on, um, you know, there's a lot going on online that will help to um, bring people together and share information more widely. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Rachel, I really thank you for being with us today. It's been extremely informative, and I know a number of the people who work with us across southern Ontario are going to appreciate this because they're trying to do the same thing in their communities, and you've really, you know, shown a way to go about this. So thank you very much. We'll have you back on real soon. Thank you for having me, Kevin, and thank you to the listeners. Okay, Rachel. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. That was Rachel Laird, a journalist from southern Ontario and uh, working in and around London. If you want to contact her, write to Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata at gmail.com. And before we go off the air, just to remind you folks again to um, go to amazon.com, put my name, Kevin Annett, in, Look at this book, our latest one, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four, or Four Fallen Targeted and Murdered Aboriginal Activists. Uh, their story is in that book, Fallen, the uh, story of the Vancouver Four. You can find it at Amazon.com, or go to the link at itccs.org. You'll see an article about it, uh, the Create Space link where you can order the book. And um, also to flag that um, in the future shows, we're going to be focusing very much on steps people are taking now to put the steam in a piston, to organize uh, workshops where people can learn these skills and take action in your community. That's really the phase we're at now. There'll be more updates next week. I hope you turn in, uh, tune in to uh, our work again. Follow us every Sunday here at 6 p.m. Eastern Time at the BBS Radio Network. And uh, a final message, uh, when I were announcing earlier about the stand-on order for the churches, I forgot to mention that we have actually, the ITCCS Central Office, has begun to receive emails from Canadian clergy, these are both Protestant and Catholic ministers, who have been asking, is it true that we can are in trouble under the law for being associated with these churches? And uh, it's interesting that that's happening, because it shows that the their ranks are breaking, that these people within the institutions, we are getting to their hearts and minds, and they're realizing that they can go to jail for being involved in these criminal bodies that not only killed so many children, but are continuing to traffic them and cover up these crimes. So this shows you, brothers and sisters, the need to be persistent. Get this information out there. Show our websites, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. The system is cracking apart. We just have to be persistent. If you do something once or ten times, it doesn't make any difference. You've got to do it persistently over a whole lifetime. That's how you can move mountains. We've demonstrated that in practice. Now let us all do it. I want to thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week. And until that time, be strong and stay clear. Thank you. Hang on up.